0: We're going to be taking a break from Mark until January. Uh, Next two weeks, it's like I was telling our musicians, I said, everything has to be done in series anymore. So we're going to take a two-week series and uh, do what I'm calling Psalms of Thanksgiving. We're going to look at two different psalms. uh, So you're going to be turning to Psalm 95, because that's where we'll be today. So uh, I invite you to turn to Psalm 95, and then I also invite you to stand as we read it together. So Psalm chapter 95. Psalmist writes, "Oh come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation." Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods In his hand are the depths of the earth The heights of the mountains are also his The sea is his, for he made it In his hands formed the dry land O come, let us worship and bow down Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker For he is our God And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the days at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said that they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath They shall not enter my rest Let's pray Father we thank you for all scripture We believe that all of it is inspired Father we pray that as we open up this psalm today That you would speak to us and you alone Father I pray that you would move me out of the way That your Holy Spirit would have free reign In what is said here today Father, I pray for our hearts, if any of them are hardened, would you soften them today so that we might respond accordingly to your will. Father, would you do whatever it is you desire to do among us. We ask and we pray these things in the name of our, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Be seated, please. I uh, grew up in a Christian home, and I really liked music, <laughs> and really the first band that I can remember are Christian bands. The very first Christian band that I really, really liked, they're still around, uh, it's a band called the Newsboys. <laughs> uh, their biggest hit at the time that I started really enjoying them was a little-known well, little song among Christian circles called Shine, which is actually a really well-known song. And it's taken straight from Matthew 5 Let your light shine before others So that they may see your good works And give glory to your God As I grew older Some of my siblings started to listen to bands That weren't Christian My dad, he's a big fan of 70s rock music My mom is a fan of country music So I experimented with listening to music Outside of Christian music I know this is very surprising But I'm somewhat of a thinker And as a younger guy I started thinking Why do I listen to music? Why am I drawn to music? And why are people John's music, period? And I remember my mentor, my pastor Hunter, I, I was trying to get him to listen to a band that wasn't Christian. I said, oh, these guys are great, what do you think? And I remember at one point in time, he says, personally, Pastor Hunter said, personally, I've been convicted to not really listen to anything else but Christian music. And he is a musician himself, and so he felt that if he wasn't playing music or listening music for the one purpose of worshiping God, then why else would he listen to it? I listen to different kinds of music. I notice that uh, sometimes music draws out and expresses different kind of emotions in my life. And though I still listen to a few secular bands now, I dominantly listen to Christian bands because I am more open to opening my life and allowing my emotions to respond to words that truly glorifies God, that praises Him and worships Him, versus opening my emotions up and allowing other words enter my mind and enter into my heart that may not necessarily exalt God, but exalt something else. Though it may be at a level that we don't see it as exaltation. I say all that to say that the psalmist begins here, that obviously this was originally a psalm. And uh, he says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. There is a precedent for what we do every Sunday morning. (laughs) When we gather together to sing, this has really been the tradition for generations of the gathered people of God. And when I say tradition, some of you like that term, others of you irk at that term, because tradition in some people's mind means let's just do the same thing, because it's all how we've always done it. <laughs> yeah, so let's make sure that we something that we do extends into the future so our kids and our grandkids can connect with us. But that is not the psalmist's focus here. <laughs> See, the psalmist... Is about singing, and that singing is for good reason, not for tradition. Because first he states, Oh come, let us sing. Why? So we can hear ourselves? <laughs> to glorify ourselves? To practice our singing? No, let us sing to the Lord. And this is a communal thing, as the psalmist is exhorting people to come, in plural, to let us sing. We see this over and over in the Psalms that the Lord gives us cause to sing communally. And singing is an exercise within worship to declare God's glory and God's praises. Notice, I said singing is an exercise within worship. Many churches have called what happens on Sunday morning the worship service. Uh, Many churches have called what Phil, Janice, Gwen, and others do sometimes on Sunday, after Sunday, the, quote, worship team. And though it is true, though it is a uh, matter of semantics, really, but what I'm worried about is blocking out certain activities, such as singing, to just be worshipped. When the Bible preaches that you and I are to be worshipping God 24-7. Loving your family... Is an act of worship. Paul says, doing your jobs, your vocational, unrelated to church jobs, they are acts of worship. Eating breakfast this morning, if done in the right heart, such as thankful that you have food, thankful that you have work, thankful that you have family, thankful that you have a place. It was a gratuitous act of worship to God. Singing is to be an act of Worship. And when the psalmist says Come together let us sing It is a communal thing that is directed to God He says let us make a joyful noise To the rock of our salvation Make a joyful noise In the original Hebrew It's basically let's raise a shout So you can't have heavy metal songs for Jesus Just kidding (laughs) Have to make sure you're listening (laughs) A shout to the rock Uh, A steady permanent, faithful place of our salvation. And so really, let's just focus on that. How amazing is that rock? How secure is that rock? You see, for God to be a rock of salvation, in my mind, it's an eternal guarantee. It means that God cannot be moved as the deliverer of our salvation. So you see why it should excite people for joyous Singing. And then the psalmist reiterates. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him. With songs of praise. Come into his presence. In the original. It's a picture. Let us come before his face. Just to emphasize one more time. There are two parties here. God and his worshipers. There is not God, his worshippers, and then a singer. Somehow becoming the mediator. In a more prominent one of those gathered. This is why we have multiple leaders up here. This is, And there is order in the way songs are led. But all the people we have up here, this is a reminder to you and to me as well, that as the preacher up here, that I'm not up here to be up here. And I don't think the song leaders are up here to be up here and say, hey, look at me. But we're up here as one among equals, with all hearts and all minds and our eyes directed to, focused on, his presence, his glory, a joyful noise to him with our praise. But verse two says that we are in his presence before his face with thanksgiving. So the idea completely now is come, let us with thanksgiving praise to God. Let's give praise to him with thanksgiving. But then that begs a question. And the question is, why? Why? The psalmist begins to answer that question with two big reasons that I have seen, at least in this psalm. Firstly, because he's a great God and creator. And secondly, because he's intensely personal. So firstly, he's a great God and creator. He says, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. We worship a great God. We worship a great God, and we worship God because he is great. It's good that he's great, because he's the only God there is. (laughs) What the psalmist is not doing is he's not taking Yahweh and then saying, you know, whenever you really make the comparison to Baal and to Molech and to all the Egyptian gods and this god and that god, and you really compare it to Yahweh and you lay out the statistics, and whenever we, we judge it, Yahweh is Really on a 10 on greatness. That's not what what the psalmist is doing. Instead, the Jewish tradition taught. Deuteronomy 4.34 says, Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. But if you think about it, what's fascinating is that lowercase gods, in other words, gods that are unreal, gods that humans come up with and then they deem worthy of worship, that's fascinating to me. I wonder if you realize in every religion today that no God comes even close to the intimacy and the personality of Jesus Christ. In fact, the very idea that God would be intimate and personal is very offensive to many religions. Why? Because religions say you gotta work and God is not impressed. And you have to strive, and you have to pay God back in order to receive salvation. And this payment is either done by self-affliction, moral law-keeping, karmic debt, and reincarnation, just all around good deeds, because their lowercase God is this far-off, absentee, self-righteous, untouchable, and personal thing that just needs to be impressed by you. And most people would scoff at the Christian idea. Of what a great God that we have. I think it's because they are (laughs) jealous. Because the point in the psalm here is that Yahweh, God is not in any competition with any other God. Because no other God exists. How great instead it is that the only God that does exist is not like any other made up God. I'm so glad that I can stake my salvation on God my rock. I'm so glad that unlike any other religion, that the one true God that exists that we serve is a God who doesn't demand us to do work, to do good, to be good, so that we might be saved. But quite the opposite. Our God is so good that he does and he did all the work and he crossed the great divide. He becomes our sin and he takes our sin and then he gives us his righteousness. It's really backwards from every other religion. There is no other God greater. Furthermore, he's a great king. After this last presidential campaign, between two people hurling insults at each other, isn't it great that our God and our king is not like that? Isn't it great that we serve a king who is altogether good? A king who loves us, a king who is the mightiest power force and the most supreme in the entire universe that we cannot even fathom, his weight or his glory or his power, but instead he wants to have a completely personal relationship with him, with us. Our God, the great God that we serve, is a great king above all others. He is also our creator, we read this. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountain are his also, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Notice, you might, contrasting terms, depths and heights, sea and dry land. It's a picture of the fact that this great God, greater than all gods and kings, is also the maker of all things. Big to small, end to end, verse 6, he, the psalmist calls him the maker. But let's not glide over this part, but consider with me the humongous feats and towering challenges that mountains and seas are in humanity's life. You think about the time of the Bible, mountains are not things you can just fly over in that day. Seas often, and still do, swallow up people and ships. I'm just reminded of this. Off and on, I've been reading a book. Many of you know I'm a history buff, and I've been reading a book called How the States Got Their Shapes. And as it sounds, it's really just a story about how the U.S. states, how they got their shapes and how the borders were drawn. Many of the borders were drawn. Two of the biggest reasons are water and mountains. Water and mountains. There's a mountain chain. Let's divide it because we just can't have the jurisdiction over that huge mountain back whenever they were being drawn. Back in earlier times, mountains were hard to cross. People died doing so. Seas are stormy. People often died. And here the psalmist says the one true God that we serve, where we can stake our salvation on unshakable, God that's greater than any earthly king, he makes the mountains that we fail to cross. And he makes the seas that we sometimes fail to cross, that are full of big creatures. He makes the dry land, the very land on which every person walks. And all of creation are subject to his providence. Verse 6 then says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Many see that the middle of Paul's letter, Colossians, I should say the middle of the first chapter, Colossians 1, they see that as a hymn. And Paul kind of states a little bit, at least it reminded me of this song, and he says it this way about Christ. Paul says, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This is the God we serve The psalmist says It should inspire singing in us Praise, thanksgiving, submission He is a great God and creator Now this is the part Where you and I like to Squirm sometimes because he's about to get Intensely personal First it's a little bit comforting (laughs) It is comforting Comforting, Verse 7 He says for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture And the sheep of his hand Starts off this verse by saying, for, as in because of what was just said. Namely, God is our maker, great God that he is, God that we worship. But then it becomes intensely personal because this is a common picture throughout the Bible. That we are seen as sheep and God is our shepherd. Think of Psalm 23, but we also think of Jesus who calls himself the Good Shepherd. I want you to think about the Good Shepherd because we're going to come back to that. However, logic dictates that from this verse 7, that if God is our God and we are his people in his pasture, namely his pasture being all the earth, then logic dictates how do we respond if we are the sheep of his hand. How are we we to respond if God is that personal with us? This whole psalm called us off to the call of what I like to call the gospel life. In other words, a life of worship, a trusting in God as the rock of our salvation, a, a life lived before the face of God in his presence with thanksgiving and gratitude. But now the psalmist gives us a warning. And he says... Finishing verse 7 and going into verse 8, he says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they have seen my work. What's interesting to me as I read this psalm is that the psalmist recognizes something when we allow God to be the shepherd of our lives. Verse 7 says, today if you hear his voice. But then what's the first thing that the psalmist says after that? See, the psalmist doesn't say if you hear his voice, write down what he says. He doesn't say if you hear his voice, say to him like Samuel before you speak for your servant is listening. Nor does the psalmist say if you hear his voice, it's your lucky day, you're winning the jackpot. But most interesting, the psalmist on whatever day, for whatever reason he penned this. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, in this psalm of thanksgiving, he says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I wonder if the psalmist recognizes that that just happens to be a common reaction. Any of you have that reaction reading the Bible? Hopefully not ever hearing any of my sermons. I know they're all feel-good ones. (laughs) But Have you ever happened to hear a sermon or read the Bible, and you have a knee-jerk reaction. That if you're just not prayed up over, your reaction is, that's wrong, that's harsh, that's too much, that can't be right. That's just too difficult. But it seems God, our great God, who crosses the great divide, and wants to be shepherd of our lives, He wants to be involved in our lives in such a way that ultimately purifies us. That God wants to do more than just cohabitation, coexistence, but he is intensely personal in our lives. And God being perfect in giving us the means by his grace and his power and his sacrifice to be a perfect and holy people with him. God has some things to say about our lives at times, right? And the psalmist says, if you hear his voice, take notice, take the initiative, do not harden your hearts, but instead be receptive. Make the listening, the receiving of God's word, a part of your thanksgiving, joy filled response. Somebody told me this last week that Romans 2 4 is a great conversion verse. I agree because it's about repentance. Paul, in the letter to the Romans, he's Spending the latter half of Romans 1 talking about the unsaved And he says some pretty harsh things Like they've exchanged God for creation They've committed atrocious sins They look and and invent new ways of doing evil And they root each other on for it But interestingly enough Paul turns the table and he's talking to saved people And he's calling out their self-righteousness And he says, you're guilty too says, you've done these things too. In essence, saying, in my mind, as you read all of Romans, he's saying grace is not a license to sin. And in Romans 2, 4, it's still a good conversion verse, a good verse to tell unsaved people. But it's important to know that Paul is talking to saved people, the people part of the church in Rome at the time, and he says, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impendent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The connection I'm making with our passage today is, do not harden your hearts to the voice of God. Because it's God's kindness to ask you to repent of sins. The psalmist then refers to a past event of Israel in verses 8-9, through Psalm 95. And he's saying, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa, at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, and put me to the proof, though they have seen my work. Meribah and Massa mean quarreling and testing, and it describes well what the Israelites did. Many of you know the story, but it's worth reading, so I invite you to turn back to Exodus 17. But just to put a little context, as you turn there to Exodus 17, the Israelites are taken out of Egypt by God through his servant Moses. Hopefully you know the story. There's many movies on it. Moses, a ruler of Egypt, but he's Hebrew by birth, and he catches wind that he too is a Hebrew. He's unsettled by that fact. He goes outside. He sees a Hebrew being beaten. So he decides to murder the Egyptian person. He got a little too passionate, a little too angry a little too angry, so he leaves Egypt as a fugitive, and finds a family in the desert to live with, Moses himself becomes a shepherd, God meets Moses through a burning bush and says, hey, be my servant, lead Israel out of Egypt, there's arguments, there's miraculous plagues, there's a daring escape, there's a split Red Sea, they're home free, and then what happens? They get out into the desert, and this happens in Exodus 17. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are all ready to stone me. doesn't sound like church today, I know. (laughs) And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go.
1: Behold, I will stand
0: before you there on the rock at Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? If you've been with us in Mark these past few months, we've been getting the picture that being a disciple of Jesus is hard. <laughs> it's worth it. That is plain in the passages in Mark 2 that we received a hundredfold in family, friends, possessions. We receive communion with God. We receive forgiveness of sins, eternal life. It is well worth it. But it's hard because we live in a fallen world with fallen hearts and we are at war against the enemy. And the psalmist here says, Don't harden your hearts like the Israelites did. You see, many of us think that if we just caught. One little glimpse of what happened to Israel as they left Egypt. Lord, just show me one plague. My faith would be infinitely strengthened. I mean, the Israelites saw the Nile River turn to blood. They saw plagues of frogs and locusts and flies just come out of nowhere. They saw livestock die. They put the lamb's blood over their doors. Why, a death angel came through and wiped out firstborns. They saw an entire sea split in half and shoot up into the sky. They saw pillars of fire and smoke, and yet here they are. Who knows, weeks or months following a pillar of fire, and they complain. There's no water. How will we survive? We're certainly doomed. Moses had led us from slavery in Egypt, but hey, at least we were comfortable there and cared for. I wonder if you can be honest with yourselves and answer if you've been there. God takes care of you in a very amazing way. <clears throat> but still you find things to bicker about. Still you find things within you to complain. I don't know about you, but this psalm this psalm here describes how I get sometimes. I should be focusing on the very fact that the God of the universe, the great God and the only God who is my rock for salvation, he became flesh and died for me. His... Love for me, his, his purchase of me, his favor towards me could not be any more vibrantly or vividly demonstrated. And I have the audacity and the stupidity at times. Whenever he says to me, hey, give that sin to me, let's be done with it. I say things like, gee, you're so harsh, God. Why would you call me out on that sin, God? Do you not love me? You see the upside down, illogical thought process there. And though it's hard to hear, and though it's easy to want to harden our hearts, God does it for our good. And the psalmist finishes on one of our favorite topics, <laughs> not really, but for 40 years, he says, I loathe that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. We don't like it when God says things like this. Sounds a little too hating, sounds a little too cold, calloused, and a little, there's a little self-righteous attorney that's in our souls right now. He wants to judge God for being too judgmental. I mean, this isn't really a good way to end a psalm of thanksgiving. I mean, the logical progression sounds like sing to God. He has provided for salvation. He's a great creator. He's the shepherder of our souls, and you better listen to him, or his wrath will call punishment on you. Like it started strong, but it faded What is the psalmist saying here? Well, in the historical focus, again, God brought up The psalmist brought up Massa and Meribah He brought up the Israelites and what happened there It's just a snapshot, as we know, the general attitude of the Israelites They got to walk around the desert for 40 years before entering the promised land Wonderful joke here I have to be. Are we there yet? <laughs> Comedic relief. <laughs> and I don't know if it's for these reasons, but the psalmist says that they are a people <laughs> who go astray in their heart. God says, lost sheep go astray. And then the psalmist stands on what you might call a negative note, a judgmental note. I see the glass half full. And I say it's a note of yearning, striving, leaning into the necessity of a savior. Why? Because God says, I swore in my wrath that I will, they will not enter into my rest. It seems hopeless. But it actually begs a question that you and I should know the answer to. And that question is, is well, how do we alleviate God's wrath? I'm going to assign you homework. And I challenge you to read and study up on Hebrews chapters 3 through 4 this week, which is really that author's sermon, if you will, on this very text. But right now, I'm just going to take you to Hebrews 4 and show you how that this is really a passage that points us to Jesus, not to hopelessness or not to forfeit. But Hebrews 4, verses 11 through 16. <clears throat> The author of Hebrews starts, he says, Let us therefore strive to enter the rest. And the author is talking about rest in heaven, the rest that is promised to each and every one of us who puts our faith in and trusts in this great God, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, right? That disobedience that played in and out in the hearts of Israelites, the quarreling, the testing, the doubting, the hard hearts. And now the author of Hebrews directs us to counsel and hope, As to how to enter into the rest of God. For the author states, verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's why we get (laughs) hard-hearted. Do not harden your heart when you hear the voice of the Lord. We feel exposed. Then the author states in verse 13, We are exposed. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. But then he says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. And this is where our hope is found, because we serve such a great God, the author of Hebrews, states, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see that. psalmist sets up a dilemma here. He says, Hard hearts equals no rest in God's wrath. But the psalmist started with a declaration of praise for reason. Good thing we serve not a God who is consumed and defined by wrath, but we follow a great God. A rock of our salvation who uses his wrath righteously and justly and has provided a way out from under his wrath. He provided a mediator, a high priest, a mediator, a spokesperson between us and God. And what's best is that it's a mediator who sympathizes with us. Don't you like that? I personally like that. I would not like to approach God and hear him saying, Why are you sinning again? What's the deal? When are you going to get over that? It's not like it's a big deal. It's not that desirable. Man, you're such a failure. We would respond, easy for you to say you're God. But no, thanks be to God, the only God, That has come before us and has been tempted in every way that we are. He's, God says, I know that it's hard. I know what that is like. I know that the odds still stacked against you, but you know what? Jesus says the odds were stacked against me. They overcame me, and I died, and I became the sacrifice, and I paid for your sins, and I've overcome the world, and I've provided a way out from under the wrath. Jesus says, just come to me because I am God. I am your mediator. And this is why the author finishes his thought in Hebrews 4. Let us then, excuse me, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. With confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is why we are able to be so thankful. This is why we serve a great God, and an intensely personal God. He's made the world, he's made us, and he desires to be intimate with us. It is so different, so different from religions that paint a picture of a mean-spirited, estranged God who needs to be flattered, bribed, and given sacrifices, and, and though completely unworthy, they want to be worshipped. But that's not our God. Our one true God presents himself as one who not only created us, but is intimately concerned with us, and has overcome the divine dilemma of sin. He has ransomed us, he's made us his own, and he wants to be a living, present shepherd in our lives. That's what verse 7 again says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. And there Jesus fulfills what the psalmist is talking about. The good shepherd. In closing, why don't we listen to these words, and then we're going to sing a song as well. But let's listen to these words from John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. But the wolf snatches them and scatters them he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I'd like to invite the musicians up and you can sing this song and we'll close in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I was reminded this Last week from listening to another preacher who opened up Romans 1.15 Where Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you Also who are in Rome He made the point that those in Rome were already Christians And we often think that those of us who are Christians don't need to hear the gospel Quite the opposite, it's the only thing that brings life to us Father, we thank you that we are a God that You are a God, whom we can thank for all that you do, whether it be creation or the intensely personal relationship you want to have with us. So Father, as we go about our business this week, may we live in light of that gratitude, knowing that you want to be with us, knowing that you want to be that intimate with us, and may we not harden our hearts to anything or everything that you would ever say to us. Father, we love you. We thank you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.